Personally, Vita's convinced me that alligators have the right idea. They eat their young. Welcome to Your Pick, a movie podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We're two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. So, um, to start with, have you watched anything good recently, the last week or two? I have. Um, I just want to clarify, first of all, that people who are listening to this now, we recorded this like months ago. So I just want to clarify, I don't normally watch this much content, but because it's the holidays and I wasn't working and I had a lot of time at home, I've watched way more things than I normally would. Um, Because last week it was like, I watched an entire season of The White Lotus in one (laughs) night. And now it's like, I watched the entire season of Fleischman is in Trouble. (laughs) Oh, how is Um, that? I've been hearing good things. It's really good. It uh, it starts out being a story about kind of like a guy whose wife abandons him and and his kids and then him kind of discovering, ooh, is like this is the fun part of being a single man and I haven't been single in a long time and girls never used to like me, but now there's dating apps that exist and I can sleep with as many women as I want. And so it's kind of, it starts out being very focused on him and his his new status of being a bachelor as a middle-aged man, um, but also a father. But then it slowly becomes actually very heavily about his wife and her, um, like her perspective as a middle-aged woman. But it's really interesting because it's not told from her perspective. It's told from the perspective of Fleischman's really good friend, high or college friend who's a woman who's also kind of going through a marital thing where she, where like she is kind of taking a break from her family and feels estranged from her husband. And so it's this really, it's really well crafted. Um, I'm pretty sure it's based on a book, but it kind of starts focusing a lot on this man, but then it becomes about just like women and wives in general um, and how sometimes they do things wrong But also sometimes the wrong things that they do, it kind of shows the perspective behind why they do those things without judging them one way or the other, whether it's good or bad. Um, But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, It's not necessarily it's not necessarily a fun watch. Um, The ending is actually, in my opinion, uh, like so grounded in realism that it's depressing. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Life is very, very depressing, (laughs) no matter how hard you try to avoid it. We're all getting older, we're never getting younger, and we're all going to die someday. (laughs) Um, But that being said, it is really, really good. Um, It's a fascinating meditation on just being middle-aged, which I am not yet, um, but being middle-aged and uh, what it looks like to recognize I chose this life, but also I didn't know what I was getting into and marriage and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I would highly recommend it. Uh, and then the other thing, well, I mean, I've seen lots of stuff because it's like the holiday 
you know, Oscar season right now, but, um, I just watched, um, white noise last night. Uh, but only the first half of it because I was very tired and was like, I should be awake while I'm watching this. So I think I watched the first 45 minutes and I think the movie's about two hours. Um, it was intriguing. I, it hasn't necessarily gotten the best reviews, but I'm a huge, huge Noah Baumbach fan. So I'm willing to stick it out. This is definitely a very different tone for him. Uh, He tends to be kind of very grounded in reality and kind of just telling stories that are somewhat or like as much as he tries to be seemingly like accurate representations of real life. Um, But this movie seems to be very exaggerated and over the top. And Adam Driver's character is literally like a professor, a world renowned professor on Hitler. (laughs) And like he knows everything everything about Hitler and everyone goes to him and it's like oh my gosh tell us your Hitler knowledge oh my god so it's very over the top um and I think it's supposed to be kind of silly at least in the beginning but it's also got like horror in it so far I don't know it's it's interesting so far uh I'll have to update when I actually finish it but uh yeah so I started watching that among other things but yeah, I won't ramble on and on about all the stuff I've been watching. Yeah, I'm intrigued to hear what you think about the rest of White Noise. I've been hearing not super great things about that adaptation, but um, I also... It's an adaptation? I, I I think it's based on a book. Like, from what oh, I've heard, it's okay. based on a book, and it's one of those books that people are like, this is a really hard book to adapt. And so they, you know, oh. you know it's possible that it's not... You know, it's just the source material makes it really difficult to adapt. But I don't know. I haven't read too much about it. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear if you if you like it, if you think it's worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. For me, um, well, speaking of <laughs> holiday binge watches that are about complicated families and extremely depressing stories, <laughs> I finally watched, you know, four or five years after it was released, I finally binge watched Sharp Objects on HBO. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I love Gillian Flynn. Yeah, yeah. With Amy Adams is, of course, incredible. Um, uh, Patricia Arquette, um, a young um, Eliza Scanlon, who's now kind of, you know, she was in Little Women a couple of years ago. She's kind of getting bigger. But yeah, I I highly, highly recommend it. It's really, really well done. It's very... um, the way that it portrays um, sort of messed up family dynamics and um, kind of the, the complexities of having family members who are kind of, um, you know, I- emotionally or psychologically abusive and um, the traumas that can result from that and the way that memory works in this kind of um, fractured way when trauma is involved. I think it's just very evocative. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of funny watching over the holidays where you're like, yeah, I'm, you know, I have difficulty talking to my family. I can really relate to this. And then as it goes along, you're like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> At least my family's not like this. <laughs> Sounds like you and I were both inspired by being around our families for the holidays because <laughs> I also rewatched um, August Osage County, which is basically a movie about a family just falling apart because they everything about it is messed up (laughs) (laughs) well that's the holiday for you but oh yeah um yeah but it's um 
Yeah, it's really good. I, I really recommend it. Um, I had had a couple spoilers just because it was a few years, you know, after it was released and some things you kind of find out by cultural osmosis, but a lot of it I was not spoiled for. So if, if you can go in as much as possible without knowing the twists and turns that it takes, I really recommend that. Um, but yeah, I, I really recommend it. Awesome. Yeah, I've been wanting to see that for years. I guess I just kind of forgot about it. But yeah, Gone Girl is one of my favorite books. So and that movie adaptation is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know who is the the director of Sharp Objects? Is it the same director for all episodes? Or I believe it is. I think it's uh, Jean-Marc Vallée. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, which is a name that sounded vaguely familiar, but I didn't actually go and look up what else by him I might have seen. Um, okay. <clears throat> but yeah, it's I have not read the original source material, but um, it seems to me to be really well done. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, <laughs> speaking of <laughs> messed up family dynamics. <laughs> oh, yeah. On to today's movie. <laughs> yeah, Geneva, I... Yeah, when you had us watch this movie, I definitely was thinking about, oh, yeah, it's uh, an interesting time of year to be watching this because we're all with our families for Christmas and uh feels like every year it gets more complicated. <laughs> yeah, you know, parent-child dynamics are just inherently a complicated um, a complicated thing. So Yes. Yeah. Well, as, as Tolstoy once said, happily fa- happy families are all like each unhappy family is unhappy in its own special way. all right so today on the show we will be discussing the 1945 film mildred pierce directed by michael curtiz who also directed my last choice adventures of robin hood oh i didn't know that yeah i did not realize that either until i looked wait really (laughs) that's crazy it's one of those things where you know there's so many you know studio directors who they just worked in you know, because they're attached to a particular system. And so they're extremely talented, but they're, they're work they're They work in so many different genres and, you know, the movies tend to be known more for their stars than for the directors themselves. So you go back and look and you say, Oh, I didn't realize Michael Curtis directed all of these different things and different genres or, you know, like a, I mean, I love like a, a sort of talented journeyman director like that. You know, your Howard Hawkses, your William Wyler's, things like that. Anyway, yes. I mean, these movies are just two totally different tones. That's <laughs> crazy. I know. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so directed by Michael Curtiz, starring Joan Crawford and Anne Blythe. Based on a novel by James M. Cain, who also wrote the original source material material for other classic film noirs like Double Indemnity and the Post Office, the Postman Always Rings Twice, Mildred Pierce tells the story of Mildred, a single mother in early 1940s California, who struggles for business success in the hope of buying the love of Vida, her manipulative and increasingly money-hungry daughter. When adapting Kane's novel, the filmmakers decided to frame the story around a murder mystery. The film opens with the murder of Monty Barragon, Mildred's second husband, which is something that did not happen in the novel. Most of the film is then told in flashback, as Mildred explains her story to a police detective and tries to take the blame for the killing, before Vida is finally revealed as the murderer. Mildred Pierce is notable for being a complex, well-rounded leading role for a woman over the age of 35, which is sadly rare in Hollywood. The film's success revived the career of its star, Joan Crawford. 
Crawford began her career as a dancer um, in the 1920s, and she embodied the the archetype of the independent flapper woman in the 20s and into the 30s. Uh, but her career began to uh, wane by the end of the 30s. She was uh, labeled as box office poison in a very famous article that also listed um, Catherine Hepburn and Fred Astaire and some other notable stars of the era whose stars were movies were beginning to not make as much money as they had earlier. But yeah, Mildred Pierce revived her career. Uh, it was a hit. She won an Oscar for the role of Mildred. And then she went on to work steadily for years afterwards in the film industry. Um, just as a side note, Joan Crawford is a very fascinating, <laughs> very complex figure. Um, I highly recommend um, the podcast, uh, You Must Remember This, has a six-part series on her life and career, which I highly recommend. If anyone is out there is interested in learning more about her, it takes many really, really fascinating twists and turns. Um, and the kind of meta quality of this role, you know, where she famously plays a sort of a, a mother and a, that sort of symbol of femininity, but then also it, this kind of hard-edged businesswoman is really fascinating in in context of who John, Joan Crawford was and how much of her career was, you know, her being a really self-made woman, you know, really going for what she wanted and um, <clears throat> working really hard to achieve the success that she achieved. So anyway, just a little, little random recommendation. I think this movie begs the question, <clears throat> How much is Joan Crawford actually acting versus just <laughs> living like her normal life? Um, but yeah, speaking of other recommendations, uh, I would highly recommend the FX show Feud Bet and Joan, which is a f um, t TV show or a limited series that came out. Gosh, I don't even know how many years ago. I hope it's not 10. That would make me feel old. No, not nearly um, that old. Four or five, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it's um it's a limited series about the relationship between that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford had during the heights of both of their fame and kind of the ebb and flow of one person rose to fame as the other person was kind of falling out and things like that. It's very very well done. The acting is phenomenal as always with those actresses. Um but also another recommendation which also comes from the podcast you must remember this. Um I would like to get into this a little bit later, um, but the woman, Butterfly McQueen, who plays the maid in this movie, um, the podcast, you must remember this, they did have um, like a podcast series where they talked about kind of um, racial, like specifically, specifically African-American representation in cinema throughout, um, I don't know, throughout like the 20th and 21st century or 20th century. Um, and there was a particular portion of an episode. I can't remember which one it is, but it talks a lot about, um, Butterfly McQueen and kind of her involvement in the film industry and what she represents and kind of her story and how she fits into the history of cinema. Um, it's quite sad, <laughs> but, um, very, very important, I think for people to, even if they don't listen to the podcast, um, you must remember this or that series specifically, but just look up some things about Butterfly McQueen because her life is, um, there's a lot of important facts there to learn about um, just the representation of African-Americans in America, period, but also in specifically American cinema. So just throwing that out there. I'd like to talk to her a little, t talk about her a little bit more later, but figure I'll just sprinkle a little bit in the beginning since Geneva mentioned, you must remember this. 
Yeah, that would be great. <clears throat> Thank you for that reminder, because I, I remember that was part of that's part of the series they did on Hattie McDaniel, right? Who was Butterfly McQueen's mm-hmm. co-star in Gone with the Wind. Uh, I forgot that they they talked a bit about her in one of the episodes. It makes me want to go back and and rewatch because I was thinking about um, thinking that's about that series a bit when I was when I was rewatching this movie. I forgot that Butterfly McQueen was as uh, prominent in it as she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, all right. Well, why don't we um, start talking a little bit about uh, how we came to this movie, our relationship to this movie. So this is one that I picked. This is a movie that I've seen many times throughout my life. I think this was probably the first film noir that I've ever, I'd ever seen. I saw it, um, not sure exactly how old I was, probably kind of 10, 12, somewhere in there. Um, I've just come back to it many times over the years and yeah, it really just started me on my kind of journey of loving that whole kind of 1940s film noir genre. It, it, you know, it was, you know, watching it as a child, I had no idea of any of the the twists and turns that were going to happen. So my mind was a little bit blown at the (laughs) end when the twist is revealed. Um, But it's also just a great introduction to, um, I think how, one, how beautiful these films can look. This is, a, in my opinion, a gorgeously photographed film. Um, just the the black and white cinematography. I think it was nominated for an Oscar, and it is very well deserved. But also just how interesting and compelling and complex the roles in these movies can be, particularly for women. You know, there are a lot of really interesting, complex roles for women in the film noir genre. Um, which you know is is not always the case, just in Hollywood in general, particularly Golden Age Hollywood. And so, just to have this opportunity to see, um, yeah, women getting the chance to play these characters who are a bit more, you know, they can be kind of more antiheroes. They can be um, people who make mistakes and and make have contradictory motivations and who make choices that are not the greatest. And it's just you know, really interesting to get to explore those sides of humanity and those um, sides that are not always as well represented in other genres. So what's your, what's your relationship to Mildred Pierce? Um, yeah, so I, so I had seen this movie before. I'd seen it once before and Geneva reminded me that she was actually the one that showed me this movie. Um, You're welcome. Uh, yes (laughs) it was a few years ago and um I this might have actually been the first classic uh noir film that I'd seen because I don't think I saw Double Indemnity until after this film um but yeah I I loved the concept of just kind of starting with this murder and kind of thinking that I knew what it was and then at the end it's like wait what? This is all kind of working backwards and oh my goodness. So um, yeah, it, it was really cool to see like one of the first versions of a noir film. Um, but yeah, that being said, I think that this movie is phenomenal. Um, Geneva, I loved that you used the word photographed um, because I feel like a lot of this movie, you can just you can just take a frame of it and it's a beautiful photograph. Um, so yeah, this movie is beautiful and similar to Geneva. I am just really struck by how much 
power they were willing to give these women in this film, uh, partic- particularly Mildred's character. She is such a strong woman. She um, she fights for everything that she gets and she earns all of it. But at the same time, she remains, at least in my opinion, she remains an incredibly humble person. She's not she's not walking around bragging and putting herself above other women of like, this is what I've built and all of this, probably because she feels shame in certain ways because she's a quote unquote waitress. But then she becomes a business owner and it's like, what? You're a badass lady. This is amazing. Um, so I thought that the movie was really gutsy in telling the story of this woman being the most I I think the most powerful character in the whole story and all of the men are like these kind of just weak guys who are just like, uh, they just don't, I don't know if weak is the right word, but just kind of spineless men who are just kind of, yeah, it's like, what are you even doing except for maybe, um, oh gosh, uh, what's the name of her of her friend who's constantly hitting on her that she's always turning down wally yeah he's maybe the only one who who he's definitely smart and capable and he's got a job where he's doing well for himself and he's not you know mooching off of other people or feeling sorry for himself that being said he's kind of annoying (laughs) um but yeah i mean i think this movie is fantastic i love I, i just love the story i think I kind of forgotten how much I loved this movie until I watched it again. And Geneva, I'm so glad you made me watch it again because I genuinely think that this is probably one of my most favorite film plots I've ever seen. Like the plot is just phenomenal. The way it's fleshed out, all of the different characters, how they um, interact with each other and how one person impacts a motivation for another person and how that kind of spirals into how they impact another person. Like it's just this, uh, it's just this amazing story that builds and builds and builds to this climax, which is also a huge twist and yeah. And all the acting, I mean, Joan Crawford's performance in this, it blows me away. Um, anyway, I don't want to like talk about everything right now because we've got a lot more to discuss, but um, yes, I think this movie is fantastic and Geneva, I'm so glad that you got me to watch it again because I probably wouldn't have watched it again, honestly, just because I guess I forgot how, how good it was. <laughs> That's good. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. I, yeah, I just all, everything that you said, I really love this movie. Um, I, I love what it's doing. I love, um, you know, how many layers there are to it, how you can, you can watch it so many times. And I think, you know, as a woman, the older I get, you know, the more kind of things that I see in it, you know, the more I relate to certain characters over other characters. Um, <clears throat> I do find it's, well, why don't we just start and kind of talk a, a little bit about sort of Mildred and just the, the themes of motherhood and what it means to be a woman, femininity, masculinity that are in this movie, which I find really fascinating. So I think there's a sort of interesting contradiction that's going on that I noticed on this watch where in certain ways, I don't know, there there are certain ways in which the movie almost, um, I don't want to say punishes, but, you know, the ways that uh, Mildred is stepping outside of kind of more traditional norms for women and for mothers. Um, you know, there's the fact that she it's off, while she's off um, 
having her fair, first date with Monty, who the man who eventually becomes her her second husband. You know, she's kind of exploring this side of herself, her her womanhood, you know, as an attractive now single woman. But it's while that's happening that her daughter Kay gets sick and eventually dies. And there's this sort of question, which I think becomes important um, kind of character motivation for her. I think she kind of takes on this guilt of, you know, the fact that I wasn't there when my daughter got sick, that I was off trying to be a woman outside the context of motherhood, you know, that kind of, there's this kind of guilt that that leads to, like she feels like she's being punished. And that then, leads her kind of to redouble her desire to be a mother to Vita and to um, <clears throat> really subsume herself and her desires for the sake of Vita. But then at the same time, the movie is very clear that, you know, this sort of her view of motherhood is something that is kind of twisted and um ultimately harmful to herself, but even to Vita, you know, it, it does not lead to her parenting Vita in the way that Vita should have. And it allows her to create this sort of monster basically by, by the end, um, you know, Vita has kind of morphed into this monstrous character and yeah. So there's just this kind of interesting push and pull in like, what are the roles for women? You know, we generally look at motherhood as this very good thing, but it's this kind of you know, then and now, but it's this kind of way that something that is good, if it's paid, you know, if it's viewed in this, this wrong way, it can kind of become this monstrous thing. Um, yeah, I don't know, just kind of some, a thought that I had while I was watching it. Yeah, I feel like a thought that came to my mind frequently throughout this movie, which is something that I just find interesting to meditate on in real life, in general, is just the concept of nature versus nurture and how much impact a parent can have on a child, even when they're trying to do their very best. Because um, parents, you, you know, I think a lot of times when we're kids, we look at our parents of, oh, they know everything. They have all the answers. And then I look at myself and I'm like, I'm 28. My parents had kids by my age. And I'm like, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so it's like my parents didn't know what they were doing either. And so I think that it's just really interesting here how we see that Mildred, she is, I genuinely think that she is trying her best, um, but her best is not, it's not the type of parenting that her daughter needs. And I think, um, gosh, why am I forgetting? Oh, Vita. Yeah, I think, um, and I think Vita also, there's the interesting question of nature versus nurture, because I feel like part of her she would have turned out this way regardless of whether or not Mildred had enabled all of her selfish desires um maybe it would have been a little bit different or less extreme but I do feel like from the very beginning we see this establishment of the difference between Vita and Kay because at that point they're both growing up with the same mom in the same house and yet they do still have these differences in their character. And I think we see their dad, Bert, pointing that out. He's like, Vita, <laughs> she's got some problems and you need to like, I think he says at one point, he's like, Kay is twice the twice the girl that Vita will ever be or something like that. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, just looking at, just looking at Mildred and her struggles of being a mom and seeing how 
she wants to do right by her daughters and the best that she can, but also seeing how basically there's no way that she can win. Uh, whether she is more hands off and kind of living her own life and trying to take care of herself or whether she's completely hands on and just giving Vita whatever she wants. Like either way, it's kind of a lose lose situation, but she almost doesn't even see it as a lose lose situation because for her, it's like as long as Vita is in my life, it almost doesn't even matter if she has this terrible behavior because you see that at the end. She's like, as long as Vita will come home, I'll give her whatever she wants. And so, yeah, kind of like you said, Geneva, I mean, there's so many different layers to this movie and to the characters, which is why I love it so much, because I I just one of the things that really, really bugs me about a prob- like majority of the movies that come out nowadays is that they're so focused on the spectacle and the overall plot that they don't really put as much detail and attention into the characters themselves, which I think maybe this is just a personal opinion and subjective, but I think the characters are the most important part of any story. Um, And this film, there's just so much complexity in all of the characters and, um, and it's super well done. So yeah, it's kind of torturous to watch Mildred go through her experience because I want to cheer her on and be like, you go, girl, you like you're doing such a good job. You're conquering life and you're I mean, you've built your own business from the ground up and you have the respect of so many people, but also you don't have the respect of your daughter. And because of that, it's killing you and you can't let it go. Um, Yeah, Mildred as a character. uh <clears throat> Yeah, there, she's she's just so well fleshed out and um, she seems like a real human. She really seems like a real human. And I love that. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm so glad that you brought up this idea of nature versus nurture when it comes to Vita. Because one thought, another thought that I had while rewatching it was, you know, where does this, <laughs> where does this quality in Vita come from? Is, would Vita have always been this way? And, you know, how, how did she become the way she is, you know, I, um, I read the book a couple times in the past. It's been a few years since I've, I read it last, but I, I took it off my shelf and I was slipping through it a little bit before we started recording just to kind of remind myself of a, a few, you know, differences between the the book and the movie. And one thing I was struck by in the beginning is, um, they describe Vita as, um, really kind of taking after Bert in, in certain ways and her really admiring things about Bert, you know, this, I, you know, he's a more, a character who, at at least in the book, he's kind of okay with not working, you know, he kind of gets by on luck. And then when his luck runs out, he's just kind of content to sit by and wait for some other bit of luck to come in, basically. Um, And he has this past where he would, you know, it was a little bit more wealthy and glamorous than it is at the beginning, start of the story. And Vita kind of really latches onto these qualities. And the movie doesn't really play up that similarity as much, um, which I find interesting. I was going to say, I didn't really pick up on that in the movie very much. Yeah, yeah. No, the movie changes it a bit. The movie, I think it it really, you know, Bird is not a blameless character in the movie. Like, I think they do, you know, they they do are are open about the fact that he is having an affair with uh, Maggie Biederhoff. You know, he's certainly not. He's not a character who is without fault, but I think they kind of soften his character a little bit and kind of smooth the way for him and um, 
and Mildred to be reconciled. I mean, they are reconciled in the book as well, but I think it hmm. is a little bit, you know, they're a little bit more on the same level in the movie, um, which I find very interesting. They're, and the fact that he, and I don't remember, I didn't see this in the book. I don't remember if this happens in the book, but that um, line that you mentioned where he's kind of the first one to notice that Vita is t- a terrible person and that yeah Vita sucks yeah Vita sucks <laughs> and that Mildred is um you know way too conscious of trying to appeal to her and trying to give her anything he wants um you know he's he's very you know Vita doesn't seem to take after Mildred and she doesn't seem to take after Bert so you have to wonder kind of where does she come from then where does she get these qualities which i find very interesting um Sorry, were you going to say? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, just kind of talking more about just like the characters and their dynamics in the movie. um, Yeah, I uh, just continuing with that idea of just the women in this movie being so strong. I, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of different just dynamics going on here. And I love how I think it's interesting how Bert even though he is, I think that they do establish in the beginning that he's kind of not the not the best guy. We can see why she would divorce him, right? Because he's kind of coming home from work and he's like, you know, the classic stereotype of, I just want to sit on the couch and read my newspaper. Won't you just give me a few minutes before you start nagging me? You know, it's kind of that sort of stereotype. But as the movie goes on, I actually found myself really admiring him and how... Y- you know, I mean, obviously, we only see him very briefly, so we don't really know what else is going on with him. And obviously, he's cheating, and that's not cool. But, you know, those things get resolved kind of later on. But um, he really is a good father, He, you know, because... And he's also a good ex-husband, because I feel like a crappy ex-husband would be like, oh, wow, you're really messing up how you're taking care of this girl, and I'm the one always having to step in, and blah, blah, blah. But every time he discovers something that's wrong, he goes to Mildred and is like, hey, I want you to be aware of this because our child is in trouble or our child is sick or whatever. Um, and even the woman that he cheats on Mildred with, like when they meet her, when Kay is sick, she's even kind. You know, she's, you know, she's polite. Maybe that's because their daughter's dying. So she has no choice but to be kind. But but yeah, no, um, I agree that she, she does seem to be a more... Um like an, a kinder, more generous person than you would expect as of the other one being, you know, that she is, she is willing to open her home to Bert's child when she's sick and she gets her, you know, she gets her a doctor, she gives her any, every attention. So yeah, you do get the sense that she's not a, she's not a bad person, even though she, I mean, like not a fully bad person, even though she has done this bad thing. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's so many different types of women in this movie, and I feel like they're all given respect. So you have Mildred, who's this, she starts out as a housewife, and then she builds her own business. And then you have the one daughter who's very much so a tomboy, which Mildred doesn't appreciate, but I think the movie is on the side of Kay, of being like, no, no, she's cute, she's having fun, just let her go do whatever. And then you have Vita, who clearly is just terrible and manipulative, and she sucks, but then you also have, you know, Miss Mrs. Biederhoff or whatever her name is. But then you also have um, Ida, 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 Ida? Yeah, I, Ida, is great. Ida, who I think is a bombshell. Like <laughs> she is super, super cool. 
And so it's like you have all these different types of female characters. They're all very different from the last. But each one of them, I feel like, is just given... I don't know. They're they're looked at with with respect and... I mean, maybe not Vita as much, but I feel like there even is still kind of a respect there for Vita. But I don't know. I just I just love how the women here are just treated as human beings, especially during a time when um, so many women were just housewives. So, yeah, I'm not that being just a house, you know, I don't want to shame women that are housewives. Like if that's what you want to do, great. But don't like force people into doing that if they don't want to. And I feel like this was a time when they were forcing women to be that. Um, and I feel like this movie kind of unashamedly was like, no, look at all of these different types of women that are not like that. Um, well, but I think, anyway. Yeah. And something that's actually very interesting, I think, about this time period is that, <clears throat> I mean, historically speaking, it's kind of a recent invention for women to be housewives. Like, that's kind of a more sort of Victorian, you know, now the middle class is growing and we could afford that women can stay home and take care of the home instead of having to work, which is more the state of things have been throughout history. But in the Great Depression and, and World War II, that was actually a time of huge social upheaval because so many people were out of work that, you know, these dynamics were starting to change and, you know, men were going off and fighting in World War II. And that meant that a lot of women had to then get factory jobs and office jobs and had to be more active in the work- workplace that they had been in the past, you know, several decades. And I think this is a movie that, you know, definitely takes a lot of cues from its particular time period. The book is more open about the fact that, you know, the about the Great Depression being a really big factor in it. But the movie refers to it a bit. You know, Mildred Bird is out of work at the beginning of the movie because the housing boom has stopped, which is presumably because of the depression and people are, you know, not able to afford buying houses in the same way. Mildred's having a lot of trouble finding a job. Um, you know, she's a, she has been a housewife for so long, you know, she doesn't really have a good, great resume and there aren't a whole lot of people that are willing to take a chance on a, Oh, that, that one quote, I was like, that, is so relatable. I can't believe it existed back then and it's been around this long. But when she first like applies for a job and someone's like, you have no experience, we can't hire you. And she's like, well, how do I get experience if no one, <laughs> if no one will hire me? Yep. And that's Tis definitely always still true today. <laughs> can we just, can we just stop? Can we just stop having society hire people based off of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. So or not hire people based off of that. <clears throat> but um Geneva speaking of speaking of the female characters, can we just address that pretty much every single outfit that any of them wear in this movie is absolutely just stunning oh, and perfect absolutely. and beautiful. Particularly Ida's outfits. I love Ida's outfits. She's got some really good striped suits and you know she's got some black turtlenecks on under her jackets and just like oh my gosh and she's not even a rich lady she just kind of works and I'm like how are these women making a living a wage <laughs> off of being waitresses and they could wear these super awesome clothes <laughs> um but yes I love 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 the wardrobe in this movie that all the clothes that the women are wearing I want to wear them even though it's not my style at all but I still want to wear them <laughs> Yeah, I could not agree more. This, again, it's probably the first film noir I ever saw and probably the movie that's first sparked my obsession with all things 19th fashion. 
I will say the one outfit that I didn't like was, I don't know if it was Vita's coming out party or something, but there was some party where she had this like shiny draped dress with a poofy shoulder. And I was just like, uh, the one she's wearing at her birthday party in the end when, um, Mildred catches her with Monty or a different one. Yes, 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 yes. yes. That's what it is. That's the one I was like, okay, I'm not into that one. Yeah, that's very, very 1940s in style. And it's hilarious. You should say that because that's literally the one where I was watching. I was like, if I ever got invited to the Oscars, that's what I want to wear. Wait, seriously? That's so funny. Whereas I'm like, I would wear Ida's suit with some pants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, also speaking of like just normal things that existed in the 1940s there were so many 1940s phrases in this movie that I just wanted to like I I don't know just appreciate I wrote them all down and I'm sure no one else will find this entertaining but I do so I'm gonna say it but there was hey what's the score and then there was aw pretzels what do I care (laughs) and then there was you want to do something about your sit down. It's like, you mean your butt? (laughs) Why why are you calling it a sit down? And then there's another, what's the score? And then this is on the level. And then um, where I think I had one more somewhere. Oh yeah. What's the big idea? There's so many different like (laughs) phrases from the 1940s that people do not say now, but I hear them in movies and I'm like, can we bring this phrase back? This is a cool one. Like (laughs) I love the all pretzels. What do I care? pretzels that's amazing yeah there's so many great lines the one wally's the one saying most of these oh yeah absolutely because he's you know he's a he's a slick customer you know he's got up on all the slang ida had some really great uh quotes too i mean she said the one totally she's the one who said the thing at the beginning about alligators eating their young (laughs) she also had this oh (laughs) okay you said that quote and i was like i don't remember who says that (laughs) yeah yeah she's she is not impressed with vita she has another one great one a little bit earlier in the movie when um um wally is like kind of looking at her and she goes well leave something on me i might get cold (laughs) oh that one's great too there's so many great lines in this movie (laughs) yeah this is such a good script it really it really is yeah one so sorry go ahead oh well i was just gonna kind of um change the subject uh slightly and i remember there is one point you know, talking about the the very different kind of strong women and, and Ida in particular and how she's kind of this interesting counterpoint to to Mildred. There is this one point in the movie where it's um, Ida and Mildred at the restaurant and they're talking about business. Um, you know, Mildred's looking over the statements and Monty and Vita come in. And I just had this thought of like, you know, it's the two kind of new money working women, you know, American <laughs> kind of representatives of sort of uh, American ideals of you know work your way up to the top versus Vita and Monty who have this sort of I guess very I don't know European in a sense a very like class filled you know old money to be high class means that you don't work and means that you just kind of you know live this life of leisure um I don't know just seeing the 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 four of them on screen is this kind of interesting counterpoint where you know Monty and Vita are on one side of the screen and Ida and Mildred are on the other and it's sort of creating this kind of visual divide between the two um 
know, I don't know. I found the class dynamics in this movie to be really interesting because it's, you know, it's set in 1940s California. It's America. You know, it's theoretically the sort of land of California is the land of opportunity. You know, it's the land of <laughs> um, <clears throat> America is the sort of the American dream. You know, you can work your way up to the top, attain money. Uh, you know, everyone has an equal equal shot at success, that sort of thing. But it is a movie that really huh. is, yeah, it's kind of exposing the the false premises behind there. You know, Vita has this very classist view of the world. You know, she she really thinks that she's born to something better and that the fact that Mildred has to work for her success is somehow a stain on her character and that Vita's somehow above it, even though Vita has never done a day's work, day of work in her life. And, you know, the fact that Monty is this sort of, wastrel who has this you know family money and this family name but is really you know kind of aristocratic like has the name but is very cash poor he can't actually afford his lifestyle that he's been born into you know that's the life that she wants um and i was i was watching and thinking that you know even though mildred is not an immigrant it's this kind of view of the immigrant experience you know where you theoretically come to america and you work your way up and you are able to give your kids the life that you never had. But it's this, again, this sort of twisted view of this this ideal that is good, but it becomes twisted into something monstrous where the, the child then turns on the parent and looks down at them because of what they had to to go through and, and considers them to be better, even though they're not actually just because of the, the luck of their circumstances. Um, I just can't... I just can't imagine being that ungrateful. I just, yeah, it's so selfish and just ignorant, honestly. And I, there was one line that I wrote down, which I think relates to what you are what you were saying, Geneva, but there's this one part where Vita says, um, in the first house that they're living in, she just repeatedly keeps saying, I don't like this house. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this house is amazing. Beautiful. Like it's, it's beautiful. It's got everything that you need. It's got character. It's got, you know, a loving family in it. It's got nice space, a good kitchen, a big living room. It's really great. And she's just like, no, I hate this house. I want to get out of here. And I'm just like, are, what, like, what more do you want? And then Mildred moves into this huge mansion at the end and literally like puts herself at the brink of bankruptcy because of it. It's this huge empty home that has nothing in it and there's no character at all. But it's like, so this is what you want? Like you want to live with this quote unquote status in society. But then when you're at home, it's ultimately literally and metaphorically empty. Like, I don't know. I just... Huh, yeah, her level of selfishness and just delusion basically is it blows my mind. Ugh. I hope there aren't real people out like that out in the real world, but if you are, watch this movie and learn about how much you're torturing your parents for living your life that way. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really good point. Sorry, one second. And Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, so I feel like just another <laughs> I feel like this might just be a reoccurring theme of something that I'll bring up in almost every movie that we watch. Because I think that good movies do this really well. But um, 
as I've said before, I love it when movies do a very good job of just establishing their characters right from the get-go. And within a fir- within the first few minutes, you kind of really get an idea of who the characters are and what's going on and how they relate to each other. And I feel like this movie is another excellent example of how that happens because the opening scene um, at the police station, so the police station scene, when it's we meet Ida and she's got her sass sitting in her chair and then we've got Mildred sitting there clearly looking very nervous and uneasy but trying to control the situation that she's out of control of and then them telling her that she can't talk to her husband and she vaguely says, you know, well, that's my first husband and he's way better of a man than I ever thought and better than the second husband. And we're like, where's the second husband? Where is he? You know, it's just, it does such a good job. And I think Wally's there at some point in the well, beginning Wally, too. Well, Wally, you know, she meets him at the very beginning and she takes him to the house right. hoping to set him up as the the murderer. Um, yes. Yeah, I had the same thing as I was watching as this script. Again, considering that the murder plot was not in the book at all, it does such a fantastic job of creating this framing Wait, device. Wait, the murder part wasn't in the book the at all? The murder was not in the just... book at all. That was invented for oh, the Oh, I thought you were saying it just wasn't there in the opening. No, no. But, it, but it's Monty not doesn't in the book die at all. Book. Oh my god! Yeah, which I want to talk a, wow. a, a little bit more about in the mi- in a minute because um, it kind of wow. leads, It it's kind of related to a larger change to Vita's character, which I find really interesting. Oh, but yeah. Just, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, 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 that's good. <laughs> yeah, but just to to agree with what you're saying about the opening, rewatching it, I was just so impressed with the opening, how it so deftly introduces each character before we start to see them their role in in Mildred's past, and the ways that it either kind of sets you up to know what to expect with the character or kind of contradicts it because with Wally, you know, what we see of Wally at the beginning is basically exactly what we know. We know what to expect from Wally later, you know, that they have this kind of flirty dynamic where he's constantly hitting on her and she's constantly deflecting <laughs> it and they're constantly using each other for their own ends. Um <clears throat> and, you know, that's exactly who Wally is. You know, he's yep. constantly hitting her, she's constantly deflecting him, but also using his interest in her to get what she needs. Um, but Vita, by contrast, when we first see her is when Mildred goes home and finds the policeman in their home and Vita's kind of like, mother, mother, what's going on? Oh my goodness, what's happening? And she just seems so sweet and concerned, you know, Uh, when we're first uh. introduced to her, you know, there's no hint that she's anything but what she appears to be, that she's just this kind of, you know, innocent sort of late teenage girl who's like, oh, mother, what's going to happen? You know, please protect me. You know, and then, of course, as the story unravels, we see that <laughs> she's completely the opposite of that. But it's such a, a an interesting, cool way to plant this idea of who her character is that will then be just gradually unraveled throughout the story. So, Geneva, you can't hold me in suspense any longer. Yeah. So so what actually happens with Vita in the book then? Yeah. If there's no, does she go to prison or so, what, how does her story resolve? Yeah, so a major change that this um that the the filmmakers made is that in the book Vita is actually a really talented musician and she becomes an opera singer so when um when Mildred throws her out the first time um she's able to establish herself as an opera singer and she creates this whole career for herself she's not in the in the film she's kind of this sort of has this mediocre talent and she goes to work for Wally and this kind of seedy establishment but in the movie or in the book, um, 
she's actually become gets this career where it's it's a very sort of high society kind of allows her to become what she oh, always wow. wanted to okay. be. So in hmm. the book, what happens is that, <clears throat> you know, Mildred, you know, Mildred and Vita re- reconcile and Mildred is, you know, her business is going down the drain like it is in the movie because, um, because of funding Vita's lifestyle. Mildred goes to Vita to ask her for financial help and she discovers oh. Vita and Monty in bed together. Mildred snaps basically and starts strangling Vita. She almost, Whoa. yeah, she doesn't kill her, but it seems for a while that Vita's voice has been dis, um, like destroyed because of this. And um, Mildred and Monty divorce, and there's kind of this whole press cycle about it. Vita and Mildred kind of reconcile for the press. And then what Mildred realizes at oh, the end what? is that Vita's voice was not actually destroyed. She what? pretended that it was so that she could get out of her current singing contract and get a more lucrative contract and then basically drop all ties with Mildred, move to New York and basically just get whatever she she wants. And so in the end. So she's even worse yes, in the book than exactly. she is in the movie. Oh, my God. So the movie ends with Mildred. Basically, her business has been destroyed and Vita is still out there. Vita has basically triumphed and gotten everything she wanted, but she's out of her life now permanently. And so she reconciles with Bert and they're just basically like, all right, screw her. We're just going to be together and you know, finally forget about well, her. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of nice. Yeah, it I is kind guess. of nice in a way. You know, it's not it's not drastically different from the end in terms of where Mildred ends up. But yeah, in the movie, Vita, or in the book, Vita basically gets what she wants. Whereas in the movie, I assume because of, in part, you know, Hayes Code, you need to have the villain get their comeuppance. Like Vita, you know, mm-hmm. Vita finally has to pay the consequences for her actions. And Hmm. I do find that really interesting, and I actually I think I really like the change that they made in the movie. Is that the fact that Vita in the movie is basically talentless, and she's not without the ability to support herself, but she she can't get the lifestyle that she wants without Mildred. You know, she's not. Right. It's not like she's inherently has this ability to achieve the lifestyle she wants, or that she actually is. You know above everyone else in the way that she thinks she is you know she's actually pretty mediocre person apart from being very beautiful and you know she needs Mildred in order to get that life even though she also despises Mildred whereas in the book it seems like Vita is does have something special that that Mildred doesn't have and that she could she could get that lifestyle for herself if she wanted to I will say though I do feel like in a certain way, even though it's way darker, I do like the ending of the book more than the movie because I do feel like, it, like I did feel the, feel this when I was watching the movie this time around. I did feel like the ending of this movie was weaker than the rest of the film because it did kind of feel like the reason why Vita killed, what's his name? I don't Monty. even. Uh, Monty. Yeah, the reason why Vita killed him seemed so kind of random and thrown in there and just almost an afterthought. And I'm like, Vita's Vita is smarter than this. She is super manipulative and all of these things. I don't see her as someone who's just going to say, oh, you don't love me. You never did. Therefore, I'm going to shoot and kill you. And also, I felt like her going to prison for that reason, she didn't go to like, it almost feels like she's not going to learn her lesson of her crazy, um, 
just like lust for money and wealth because that's not that's not actually why she went to prison. She went to prison because she killed someone. And I'm like, well, the reason why she's going to prison isn't actually because of the issue she had in the first place. So I feel like that doesn't have a satisfactory kind of like closure for me to her arc because I'm like, oh, she's being punished, but for the wrong quote unquote, like for lack of a better word, for the wrong crime, you know, like sure, she killed somebody, but that almost is not as bad as all of the other things that she's done in her whole life. And so I can actually, now that you mention it, I can see how that ending was kind of made up for the movie because it does feel a little bit more disconnected from the story, in my opinion, than than the rest of the movie does. It does feel like it was kind of a last, not last minute, but, and I don't want to say tacked on as if it's lazy. It doesn't feel lazy to me, yeah. but it does feel like this doesn't quite fit with like, this doesn't feel like the ending that should have existed for this yeah. story. It feels like it should be something else. Well, it shows a sort of impulsivity in Vita, which is not present in her character anywhere else. It's the only time that Vita ever acts impulsively. And I think it makes sense for her being punished in the sense of she's being punished for her selfishness and she's being punished for her kind of willingness to just act to the detriment of everyone around her. Um <clears throat> you know, to, to get what she, you know, to get what she wants or to get what she thinks she deserves. Um, but I think you're, yeah, I think you're right that it is, it is a little bit out of, out of character for Vita to act so impulsively and to just do something without it being part of a larger scheme for her own betterment. And I think Vita, you know, I can see her being mad at Monty because she thought he was going to marry her and that would get her into the upper class lifestyle that she wants it doesn't seem like I, I don't see her being mad at Monty because she thought he loved her and like she's mad that he exactly. doesn't have his love yeah right like I could see her going on a rant of like you promised me this and I it was a done deal and I was supposed to get this and we had an agreement and now you're going back on your word and I hate you for that and blah 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 rather than you don't love me oh my gosh my heart can't take it I'm gonna shoot you like I wish she would have had this monologue of really just un unleashing her hateful character on someone that took away from her the thing that she finally had in her grasp. Like I would love to see her just go full on evil dragon lady <laughs> and that be her end. And it's like, okay, well now she's going to jail because we see, you know, but yeah. um, I mean, I think there's a lot yeah. of room there for it because, you know, we've seen many times that Vita knows how to say something that will make herself sound better when what she's really angling mm. at is money. You know, there's so many times when she'll be like, Oh, mother, I, I, you know, I, I really wish like early on in the movie when, when she's like, you know, if you married Wally, we could have more money. And she's like, uh, why would you, you wouldn't want me to like marry someone I don't love. Like, you know, you wouldn't want to like trade me for more money, would you? And then Vita's like, oh no, mother, of course not. Just so long as we're together. I just wish we had more money. <laughs> you know, like she well, she knows how to say things that she doesn't mean when what she's really angling at is. I mean, I, I agree with you. I could see her trying to, you know, cover her actual motives and sweet talk at the end before she kills him. I'm just saying that I would feel more satisfied as an audience member if she just went full on evil devil. And it's like, well, 
we finally get to see who she really is and so does everyone else <laughs> yeah um yeah although but, we do get yeah. that great scene which i i is a scene i love like i think and Blythe got an, a sporting actress nomination for this role i think she totally deserved but the scene in which um after vita has manipulated this family into you know she married the son and then she claims that she's pregnant so when they settle on a divorce oh settlement she gosh. gets the money and then i forgot Mildred about that that was terrible yes and she Vita has this amazing speech where she talks about how, you know, with this money, I can get away from you and the smell of kitchens and grease and everything that is poor and low and common. And she just, oh, it's an in- incredible. And that's that's the scene when Mildred finally says, I think I'm seeing you for the first time. Yes, I right. Think so, yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That scene is vicious. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And she there's this great moment where, you know, they're on the steps. Mildred has grabbed the check that Vita that Vita got um, and tore it up. Vita slaps Mildred, and there's this wonderful moment where Mildred is knocked back, and she's on the steps, and her back is on the railing, and she's looking up at Vita. And there's this great framing where we're seeing, you know, Mildred's face. We're seeing her from the front, and she's looking up at Vita, and we see the back of Vita's head. And this just this kind of dynamic between the two of them, where Vita is the taller and the more powerful one in the frame, but she's also she's got a back her back to us, and so, um, you know, she's this kind of terrifying faceless entity, and Mildred is just kind of looking up at her in this kind of shock and like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? I have this this I'm seeing this person in this new light. It's just it's really really great, great framing, you know, great blocking director. I noticed, I actually noticed that same thing and I wrote it down in my notes, but I added another layer to it of, I love how it goes from the contrast of Vita standing up above her, right? And then Mildred's on the floor, almost cowering a little bit, but then Mildred stands up and the way that they're standing on the stairs, they're the same height. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, oh, these are like, right. So it's like, these are two equally matched people in their rage and in their willingness to just like I I don't it's like they're what's the word I'm looking for like they're they're nemesis or nemesis I don't know they are each other's nemesis but they're both equally capable of destroying the other and I just love how it's kind of this shift of Mildred being down on the ground and then she's like heck no, I'm not going out like this. I'm going to stand up for myself, literally and figuratively. Um, and she does that. And that's kind of when she does stand up for herself. And she's like, I've never seen, like now I'm seeing you for the first time, get out of my house. And um, which then ends with Vita walking down the stairs, right? Basically showing like, yeah, she lost this battle, but she's going to come back, right? Um, yeah, which but- is a, oh, sorry, finish your thought. Well, so I was just going to say, like, which is kind of a transition. So if we want to come back to to your thought, we totally can. Um, But just before I get, I wanted to mention that something that I also noted was just the staging and the blocking of the actors throughout this whole movie is phenomenal. But there was one particular scene that I wrote down, which is where Mildred discovers Monty and Vita kissing in, um, I think, his house. Or something like I for wrote the this first down time. As well. Incredible li- use of shadow. It, 
Oh my God. Like he looks like this. I mean, he's just a complete silhouette, right? And so you don't even see his face or anything. He's just this shadowy figure. Well, the, the two looks of them, like, at first, they're both in shadow. At first, mm-hmm. yeah. But then she comes up and he's just this like looming. Oh my, like I, I mean, all of the shots in this movie, there's so many great uses of shadows in the beginning when Wally's kind of walking around the house and he's trying to open the doors Mm -hmm. and he's like standing in front of these striped pillars that make it look like he's in prison. Like throughout the whole movie, there's just incredible use of shadows and lighting and cinematography and how photography can do like black and white photography. But it also includes the production design in that because it's like if we didn't have the production design helping create that character of it's like the lighting in its in and of itself as a character. But without the aiding of the production design, it wouldn't be the same. And I felt like this particular shot was like the amalgamation of all of those things. It was the epitome of it, of like, we've got this production design piece of them laying across this bar, which is by alcohol and they're both in the shade and then she leans up and she's in the light and she's wearing this outfit and he's looming in the back and then Mildred enters the frame and I was like oh my gosh (laughs) this is so cool (laughs) but yes I just needed to get that out of my system because I watched I saw that shot and I was like the filmmaker in me was drooling I was like this is amazing this is cinema I love this (laughs) yes I'm so glad you you brought that up because yeah I had that my notes as well it's just oh it's absolutely gorgeously immaculately so shot great. and and staged um and just yeah again like black and white cinematography the way that shadow can be used to reveal information at specific points in time and the way that framing and you know the way that light falls across a character's face can reveal the sort of contradictions within them or you know bring them into greater clarity or sh- cloak them in shadow it's oh, it's beautiful beautiful the dying art i love it so much oh yeah yeah what i was gonna say earlier was um yeah sorry i totally cut you off (laughs) it's just i remember in previous viewings of this movie after this incredible confrontation between vita and mildred where mildred kind of sees vita for the first time and how monstrous she can be in previous viewings i remember being a little bit sort of confused by then you know after that scene Mildred goes on a long trip and then she comes back and she's immediately like, I want Vita back. I have to find some way to get Vita back. And I think in the past, I was kind of confused by this where I was like, where we just, she just finally learned who Vita was. And then we have this incredibly quick montage where she's, she's gone and then she comes back and then she changes her mind so quickly. Like it seemed to go so quickly for me. Like I I felt like it didn't have enough time to breathe. But now on rewatch, I realized, I think it actually works really well because I think that there's this kind of constant upping, you know, throughout the film as things build. And Vita for Mildred is, she's an addiction, you know, Vita is Mildred's fix, basically. And so the the quick transition, you know, Mildred comes back from her travels, we see that now she seems to have developed a drinking problem. Her hand is shaking when she tries to light Ida's cigarette. You know, she now takes her liquor straight the way she never used to in the past. And it's just kind of mirroring the way that Vita has become this sort of drug for her, you know. And so the fact that she sees Vita in full, 
She tries to go cold turkey and she can't. She has to come back and she has to mm-hmm. basically she's like, I know who she is and yet I'm going to do absolutely anything it takes to the extent of burning down my business, basically, you know, marrying this man I don't like, you know, spending all of this money to buy his house and redecorate it in the hopes, not even with the promise, just in the hopes that she'll come back. You know, she is this sort of yeah, the, this drug for her. And she, it's just constant upping and upping and upping until finally the end of the movie is basically Mildred hitting rock bottom and finally <laughs> coming to the point where she says, okay, I, now I finally am ready to, you know, psychologically let go of this this person who had been the, you know, the source of, you know, what a drug does to the brain, you know, this, this source of fulfillment, the source of happiness, the, of pleasure, you know, finally I'm ready to let go of that and begin to live my life without it. I feel like that that kind of um, closure for Mildred at the end, though, I feel like it almost happens because she's kind of forced into, into accepting that that's the way that it is. Because even up until the very end, she's like, she's trying to no, 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 I killed him. I killed him. I killed him. Until it is literally undeniable that the daughter that she didn't do it that the daughter did it and it's only when she's faced with that inevitability that she's like you know what yeah like I I need to let this go I'm sorry I did everything that I could but at the end of the day I have to walk away from this and I just found that to be really powerful at the end of her seeing her finally let go because I almost feel like gosh I mean you can just see it in Joan Crawford's performance just how she kind of just finally is able to let out a breath of just like, I, I release you. Like I, I wash my hands of this, right? Like I, I cannot carry this anymore and I have witnesses and I finally have, I don't know. It's like, I finally have permission to let this go because before it was like, yeah, my husband's told me this or my ex-husband has told me this or I just told me this. But now it's like people are forcing me to reckon with this. And now that I have no other choice, I'm like, okay, it's time now to just let go, you know? And I feel like you see that in her face and in her body language and this sense of relief. Um, And almost you, I feel like you see it in Vita's face too, because she's really recognizing, wow, my mom is done with me. Like as she's being pulled away, I feel like you can see her just recognizing this is it this is it for our relationship. This is it for me. This is it for whatever I thought I would be able to, to get or live my life as or whatever. Um, yeah, I just love that, that like ending dynamic there and both of their performances and the police officer's just kind of sitting there and he's just like, Oh yeah, like take her away. You can leave Mildred, whatever. (laughs) It's like, but guy, like this is years and years and you have no idea how much you've helped and all that stuff. But yeah. 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 I know. It's like, because it, it's interesting because there is a point earlier in the film where Mildred could have made a different choice and it would have been better for her and it probably would have been better better for Vita. Like I had this thought when she goes to meet, she sees Vita singing at the club and Vita refuses to go back with her and is basically like, you can't give me the life I want. So I'm, I've done this and I, I'm working for myself and I'm free now. And if Mildred had been a different person and had made a different choice, she could have just walked away and it would have been, it would have been better for her. And it probably would have been better for Vita. Like 
This is what Vita has needed all along is for the chance to stand on her own two feet, try to make it for herself, make, you know, make the life, make for herself the life that she can. And if she can't, like to bear the responsibility and the consequences for that. But Mildred can't, you know, she has to be the mother. She has to be the person to provide, to get Vita whatever she wants. And then finally, at the end of the movie, Vita has, you know, is forced to basically lie in the bed that she created for herself. Like this is, she could have done that earlier if Mildred had been willing to walk away, but she wasn't. And now finally, there's no, there's no other opportunity. There's no other choice. You know, Vita finally has to, to, yeah, to, to bear her own consequences. So it is, you know, satisfying, tragic, but satisfying in that sense, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating story. Um, I don't think if there's anything else that I I wanted to, to say about it. Do you have any last thoughts, any other notes that, that you had? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say also about the ending. I mean, it's, you know, it, the the symbolism of the the way that when Mildred's story is over, the detective opens up the shade and it's now morning and the light is streaming in. Like, you know, it's a it's a commonly used piece of symbolism, but the idea that Mildred and Bert at the very end are walking together out into the dawn and it's a new day and it's a new chapter in their lives, it does end on this very hopeful note for the both of them. That they can they're kind of starting off on a new foot. Um you know, in a sense, they're back where they were because they're they're back together. But you know, hope now that Vita, this kind of poisonous part of their lives, is gone, there is this hopeful sense that maybe they can make it work this time around. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> speaking of speaking of Bert and you asking my final thoughts, this was actually my final thought that I hadn't mentioned. I don't know if you agree with me, but I feel like the the actor who plays Bert. I feel like he is the one performance for me in this movie that just feels super weak. I agree. I, I do. I am not impressed with his performance at all. I feel like they could have cast someone else who like, I don't know, could actually act <laughs> and not just say lines with a complete dead face. Yeah, like, I definitely agree. I don't know. Um, I feel like there's so much more that could have been added to that character in terms of you know, feeling heartbroken or feeling love for his daughter or feeling torn between this or feeling anger or I just feel like there's so much more meat on the bones of that character, but we didn't really get to, I don't know, we didn't really get to see it because I felt like this was just a guy saying lines and it really bothered me, <laughs> but not to end on a negative note, but that was my last thing that I wanted to say. Yeah, no, I agree. I've always thought that, that, that actor, I forget exactly, I forget his name, um, but he's yeah he's he's not the greatest of actors he's a bit stiff i looked him up on imdb and apparently he played tarzan in the past and i was like yeah i can see that oh yeah yep <laughs> yeah but being someone who's <clears throat> learning how to communicate with humans <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just kind of has to stand there and look pretty and <laughs> grunt i don't even think he looks that pretty though but maybe well, that's the photos i opinion. saw of him 10 years earlier he looked pretty pretty but it's like you know this is 10 years later and not to be mean yeah. to him, but um, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Not that the way that men or women look is their value in uh, in movies, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to, to have a final point then that is a little bit more positive. Um, actually, we haven't really talked too much about 
the character of Monty, but I think the actor who plays him does a really good job. And I find him to be kind of fascinating and his dynamic with Mildred to be really fascinating because, you know, similar to Wally, he is a character where he and Mildred are just kind of using each other throughout the movie. I mean, every character, not, I know I shouldn't say every character, certainly every, so many characters throughout the movie are just using Mildred and she's allowing herself to get used for the sake of, you know, then she's kind of using them back in, in certain ways. But certainly Monty is is no different. You know, he he and Mildred initially do seem to have this kind of rapport and this kind of affection for each other. But I think it's mostly based on just sex, basically. You know, the fact that they're very attracted to each other. Um, and that seems to die out very quickly. And then after that, she, because he basically starts sleeping with her daughter very early which I was, on. Yeah, which I was wondering as I was rewatching it, you know, at what point does the affair between the two of them start? Because so early on, Monty's paying a lot of attention to Vida, but it seems at the beginning to be, you know, he likes Mildred. And so, you know, pay attention to the daughter to get on the daughter's good side, because that'll be helpful with the mother. But obviously, at a certain point behind the scenes, it turns into this sexual relationship. And so I think it was sexual the whole time. I think they came back from that lake house and he was like, well, look at this young lady. I'm going to go for her instead. And I've already slept with her mom. So she probably thinks that I'm into her. And so, all right, here we go. Let's do this. Yeah. Well, because they spend so much time with each other. You know, Monty is showing Vita a good time. They're going off and doing all of these, you know, idle rich person things. They're going to races. They're going to parties, you know, at any point it, it could have it could turn sexual because you know they're basically just living off of they have this whole life that they have together that where they're living off of Mildred's largesse and Mildred is allowing it and she's probably at the back of her mind she probably knows there's oh, something she going knows. on she knows yeah and she's willing to fund it because it uh, it allows Vita to stay in her life longer than it would otherwise um yeah so no, Monty, fascinating, very, very gross, but interesting character. Super gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think the actor who plays him, um, Zachary Scott, I think his name is. I think he does very well. Where he's sort of like, he's sort of like, he's super well cast. He looks like Voldemort. Yeah, <laughs> he's sort of like handsome, you know, by the standards of the time. You know, he's he's got the little mustache, but he also has this kind of weak chin and. Like, you know, he's like sort of handsome, but in this kind of like pretty but useless way. You know, you can't see him. He looks very patrician. You can't see him doing any manual labor. You know? So if you're a guy with a small chin, just know that Geneva does not like you. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, you know, just this kind of like, I don't know, the, the sort of physical type that you'd expect is this sort of pretty person who is rich and idle, you know. Yeah. Um, Geneva, before we um, before we kind of move on to our last section here, can I just go on a on a very uh, short essay about Butterfly McQueen? Oh, yes, please. You wanted to, to okay. talk about her. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm gonna be perfectly honest. I meant to wake up this morning and do super in-depth research. I didn't do it. So <laughs> <laughs> so I've got I've got very minimal research here, but um I would highly encourage people to go um look up more about her life. But um so the actress Butterfly McQueen, she plays uh what's her name? Lottie? Lottie, I think. Or yeah. 
Yeah, she plays Lottie, who is uh, Mildred's maid, kind of throughout the movie from start to end. And we kind of see her in little spurts. She might only be in like three, four or five scenes that are super brief. Um, yeah, she's sort of it's but the fact that Mildred can hire a maid after she she starts working in the as a waitress in the beginning, which a can you imagine a time period in which you could work as a waitress and be able to hire a maid <laughs> and support a family and, <laughs> anyway um but it's kind of the symbol that Mil- mildred is starting to move up in the world a little bit yeah which begs the question wow a black character is being used as a symbol yep. to create some sort of other uh character arc for another character yep. they only exist for that purpose yeah and lottie is um, kind <laughs> of this sort of supposed to be kind of a comic relief character which you know i'm, I'm sure you're going to talk about like the particular type of comedic relief quote unquote that um sort of was the archetype that butterfly mcqueen often played at the time which plays into larger questionable elements of 1940s hollywood yeah um so in the little bit of research that i did do about um butterfly mcqueen so she was also i think her most notable role was in gone with the wind uh, I don't remember her character's name in Gone with the Wind, but she also plays a maid in that movie. And she has uh, one of the most demeaning uh, lines that any uh, African-American character has had in a movie ever. I don't remember specifically what it is because I didn't write it down, but it's something about giving birth to babies. And she's like, who dat? I don't know dat. I don't give birth to babies. I don't it's know like nothing something... about birthing no babies. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something like that. Yeah. Um, but if you if you look at her, just her career, um, so she she pretty much only ever played a maid. There was one movie I forget what it's called because again, I didn't take notes on the research that I did, and it was very minimal. But she she was in one movie in which she did not play a maid. Um, it was some I think it was some sort of war film, um, and she said that that was kind of her hope that she could start to play different roles. Um, but her role, her very brief moment in that movie, was actually cut. It was not even included in the final version of the film. So there is no visual record of her having any sort of role that is not a maid um, in the movies that she was a part of. So and then another thing is for her role in Gone with the Wind, she was um, not allowed to she was not invited or allowed to attend the Oscar ceremony because it was an all white ceremony. Um, even though she was uh, a character in that film who should have been given permission to attend and be there. Um, So, yeah, and just kind of the the history of... So Butterfly McQueen is not the only um, African-American actor or actress who has exclusively been a maid or something like that or a service character. Um, Like Geneva said, they're supposed to be this comic relief. It's like, oh, yeah, let's just make them funny and put them on the screen and make them kind of ridiculous so people can laugh. But then also relief in heavy quotation marks. Right. And it's also supposed to kind of show their it's like, yeah, we'll put them on screen, but we're going to have them be of limited intelligence because we don't want to push it too far. So we'll just have them here to make you laugh, but not really anything more than that. And they'll just serve us when we want them to serve us. Uh, Pun not intended, but (laughs) but ultimately there. So um, and I remember reading something about Butterfly McQueen where she actually she stopped acting uh, because she realized she kept being cast in the same roles and she ultimately hated it and didn't want to do it anymore because she recognized what it represented and she didn't want to be a part of it. 
Um, I did see that later on in her career, I think she started doing some television stuff in which I think she was also a maid. <laughs> um, oh, and I think she did some theater things as well where she was not a maid. Um, so she did end up coming back to performance related things, I think in the seventies. Um, and I think she died in the nineties. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like the limited research that I can remember from what I looked up, uh, yesterday, but, um, yeah, I think it's just important to note that, uh, African-Americans, men and women during this time period, a lot of times when they were included in cinema, particularly white movies made by white people, starring white people for white people, the, the images that we saw of African-Americans were, um, very demeaning and, uh, for a specific purpose, they didn't want them to come across as intelligent. Um, and they were always in these service roles. So yeah, I'm not going to claim to be the most educated person. So I'm not going to go on like a full rant about that. Cause I have my personal feelings regarding that, but I don't know how many facts I can back it up with. Cause I haven't done, you know, eons of research, but, um, I just felt it important to mention that because Lottie is um, an example of that in this movie. So, um, yeah. 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 No, thank you for bringing that up. And I, again, you know, I, I highly recommend anyone who's interested in um, learning more about it just to do, to do more research, to look up um, more about her life. But in particular, the, a good starting point is that um, you must remember this series on Hattie McDaniel because she, from what I remember of that series, there is that kind of, you know, sort of debate at the time within the African-American theatrical community of, you know, is it better to be accepting these roles, which are very sort of stereotypical roles that kind of, you know, um, sort of embrace racist stereotypes that are um, mainstream in white culture of the time but still will allow you to be acting in this industry and allow you possibly to parlay that into to roles of greater depth, which is kind of the the the, the path that Hattie McDaniel um, ended up going down, at least for part of her career. Um, or is it better to be kind of staying out of the industry, or at least that those sectors, the more mainstream white sectors of the industry in the hopes of then kind of creating a separate, you know, creating roles for yourself that are more within African-American um, sort of theatrical industry and not to the, the more mainstream white culture. And, you know, it's a complex, complex issue, um, but, you know, well, well worth um, more research and awareness of, but yeah. So yeah. thank you for and bringing that up. Yeah. Just to throw this out there real quick, a lot of people, and I didn't even recognize this until a few years ago, um, a lot of people don't know that there were African-American or black movies being made at this time. Um, It's just they were not really being seen by anyone or shown in theaters anywhere. Um, But if if people are interested in, in watching movies from kind of this time period that are made and representing and starring and showing African-American stories and experiences, um, they do exist out there. So feel free to look some up. Um, I myself am kind of, I'm compiling a list on Letterboxd of a lot of these classic um, films that I would like to watch that no one, not no one, but a lot of people haven't seen because they just don't know that they exist. So um, who knows? Maybe I'll watch one and we'll talk about it on this podcast. I have to start working through that list, but um, 
those movies do exist so go look them up and check them out and if you watch them before i do shoot us an email and tell us your thoughts yeah yeah that'd be great <clears throat> all right well um Yes. Do you have any more thoughts on Mildred Pierce overall, or should we start to wrap up? I love this movie. That is my final thought. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Awesome. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned before, Joan Crawford won the Oscar for Best Actress for this film. Um, the film was also nominated for Best Picture, uh, two Best Supporting Actress nominations, both Anne Blythe, who played Vita, and also Eve Arden, who played oh, Ida. I didn't know Eve Arden had one. That's great. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's she's well-deserved. She's wonderful. But it is a kind of interesting, I think, <laughs> showing the two, the two kind of ends of the spectrum of what a Best Actress nomination can be. Because Anne Blythe, you know, she's basically the second lead of the movie. Like, she's a very, very prominent character. Whereas Eve Arden is very much a true supporting character where she just... You know, she pops in for a few scenes and she's great and she's kind of steals the movie in her scenes and then she pops back out. Um, anyway, but yeah, well, well deserved. Uh, was also nominated for Best Black and White Cinematography um, at this it time. It didn't win? I do not. If it didn't win, so. I'm going to riot. It should have won. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to quickly double check that, but I don't think it won. I don't care what it was up against. This movie should have won. <laughs> Yeah, and actually now I'm curious what else it was up against um, at this time. Take if it. you want to keep talking, I can look it up. So, <laughs> uh, Oh, sorry, I've got it right here. The okay. winner that year was The Picture of Dorian Gray, which I've never seen. Um, I also have But that. also nominated this year, list, actually, is uh, The Lost Weekend, which is a fantastic movie directed by um, Billy Wilder, and also Spellbound, which is a sort of lesser known Hitchcock movie with Ingrid Bergman and G Gregory Peck, but that movie is well worth watching because it has this incredible dream sequence. Um, that's this very sort of abstract stylized, um, yeah, just, just sequence of full of symbolism with what the character is going through. Um, I imagine that's a big reason why it was nominated. Um, but yeah, interesting. Ingrid interesting Bergman in an Alfred Hitchcock movie? <laughs> I know. What? She was Shocking. never in Hitchcock <laughs> movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, yes, it also won for, or no, sorry, it was nominated for Best Screenplay as well. I can't um, believe it didn't win any of these. I feel like it, it deserved to win cinematography, screenplay. Like, it deserved so mm -hmm. many things. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely did. Um, the um, I believe that critics, you know, the, this movie was a hit. It, it made money. Um, the critics were generally favorable for it, although I don't know that it was kind of considered the sort of immediate classic that it eventually became. But um, I found a review from 1945 from Variety. It says, It skirts the censorable deftly, but keeps the development adult in dealing with the story of a woman's sacrifices for a no-good daughter. High credit goes to Ranald McDougall's script for his realistic dialogue and method of retaining the frank sex play that dots the narrative while making the necessary compromises with the blue pencilers. <laughs> so critics at the time were very aware um, the, the novel could be a little bit more, um, you know, free and frank with the sexual elements, which the movie had to, um, you know, had to make a little bit more implicit for the sake of the Hays Code censors at the time. But um, I think it still does a very good job. You know, you, you know everything that's going on. You know who's sleeping with who. <laughs> you know what things are being said. 
but you know it it is just enough has changed to um you know pass the the standards of the time not to uh not to go too far down this this tangent but it begs the question how much do we actually need explicit sex in movies in order to get certain themes and stories across because i think not that I'm saying, like, let's not have sex in movies ever, because I don't want to go back to this period where there's this rule where you can only have this much or whatever. But I think it's worth thinking about when making a movie, how much do we have to have this in there versus how much will just naturally come across if we show enough, but not everything, you know? And I think, yeah, I don't know. I just think that that review in this concept kind of begs begs the question. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of what makes a moment, you know, exciting and full of sexual tension is about the acting between the characters and the chemistry they have and the words that they're saying and what they're not saying. And so much of that could be conveyed in this period. You know, you don't have to actually show the act. You can, if you set it up correctly with, you know, the the development of what's going on between the characters and the the intimacy that the actors are showing on screen, you know, you can have that sense of, you know, that tension, you can have that excitement, you can have that sort of, ooh, <laughs> you know, this is really sexy that what's going on between these characters without actually having having to show it. And like um, like that line in Robin Hood when Robin Hood's like, I will what is it? Like I will <laughs> be sure to enjoy every command yes. that you've given or whatever well, it is. May I enjoy all your commands with equal pleasure, right? With my equal king. pleasure. It's like, okay, we get it. <laughs> yeah, we get it. <laughs> you know? And again, that and that also yeah. really works because there's so much great chemistry between Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. And so we're like, oh, these characters genuinely like each other. And, you know, they're, you know, we know what's going to go on once they're, once they're, you know, married and behind closed doors. So yep. anyway, <clears throat> all anyway. that is to say is like so much of it just comes down to really good writing and really good performances that are coached by a really good director. So yeah. Um, I found this other essay from 2017 um, on the Criterion website by a writer named Ooh, Imogene Sarah Criterion. Smith. Sorry, what did you say? I just said we love Criterion. Oh, yes. Yes, we do. We love their, their work. Um, but she says she's specifically talking about the idea of um, sort of uh, class dynamics and the working women within Mildred Pierce. And she writes, Beneath the sheen of glamour and the throb of melodrama, Mildred Pierce is an acute, unsparing study of relationships poisoned by class and money. The plot reveals a cruel sting in the tale of the most essential American promise, that hard work, sacrifice, and self-improvement will find their ultimate reward in the next generation's success. But these caustic insights are embedded in a movie as satisfying as the comfort food Mildred serves in her neon-lit upscale diners, the dialogue crisp and salted with wit, the decadently rich emotion cut by just enough acerbic tartness. So, yeah, I agree with that. I think this is a movie that's really intelligent about the sort of uh, class dynamics that it's portraying the um you know the the critique of the american dream the complex relationships between you know family members between men and women but it's also just a really fun movie to watch you know this movie just you know it's about two hours but in my opinion it just flies by it's just it's really really fun there are so many great lines um there's a lot of tension there's a lot of excitement um yeah i love this movie i think it's great can I just can I just make a slight edit to that review and bring it into 
I mean, this is totally unrelated kind of, but like Mm -hmm. I was just reading that and it made me think of if we bring this one sentence into the modern day, it would just be life reveals a cruel sting in the tale of the most essential American promise that hard work, sacrifice and (laughs) self-improvement will find their ultimate reward in success. (laughs) It's like, I feel like I was told growing up, if you work hard, if you sacrifice and all these things, then you'll have success. And it's like, well, it's not enough anymore. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I mean, you could definitely write a new Great Gatsby about the sort of millennial dream dying in the wake of the 2008, um, you know, Great Recession and just you know the 21st century in general but that's the world needs to listen day. to the to the sufferings of the millennials that are caught <laughs> yeah. between two generations <laughs> yeah, uh, are so anyway tang- anyway sorry um, no it's fine um <clears throat> yeah so it just final thoughts in terms of what it is about this movie that has has moved me and really stuck with me over the years um yeah, I really just think it's the it's the dynamic between Mildred and Vina, and particularly that that scene that we we talked about in which Vita finally sort of lets loose all her sort of venomous, malicious thoughts and her hatred of Mildred, and how just shocked and helpless Mildred is. But then at the same time, how desperately she she still needs her. Like I just the the sort of twisted dynamics of that, and again, you know as we talked about before, the way it then allows for this really interesting, complex, um, sort of strong but flawed portrait of womanhood, I think it's just, it's just fascinating. It's so well done. And it, it really does resonate and have relevance, you know, 60, 70, 80 years later. What about you? Anything particular in this movie movie that kind of moved you or, or sticks with you? I think the same, just the the portrayals of the complexity of womanhood and how just there's so many different ways to be a woman, I guess. And it's showing the positive sides of it, but also some of the ultimate negative sides of it. And I think you see those positive and negative sides in the men as well. This just almost feels like, I don't know, it almost feels like a non-gendered movie. It's like these are just humans. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female you can have all of these different characteristics. And um, I just like movies that treat women as people as opposed to like, this woman must be a woman. It's like, well, she's really, I mean, yes, she's a woman, but also she's a human being and just a person like anyone else. Um, So I just love how this movie is willing to show the strength, but also the weaknesses at the same time um, and give them each equal, equal merit. Um, And also the cinematography and the shadows and that one particular scene that I think we both raved about before (laughs) where um, Mildred discovers Monty and Vita um, kissing in that, in that back room. Um, I mean, that's just a stunning, absolutely stunning shot. Um, Yeah. I want to like blow that up and put it on my wall, but it also would kind of be a depressing photo (laughs) photo to have (laughs) on the wall, but it'd be beautiful. Um, But yeah, those are kind of the two things that I think are going to stick with me. And uh, like I said earlier, Geneva, thank you so much for bringing me back to this movie because I don't know, this might be a movie that I revisit every couple years. It's super freaking good. It's so good. You're welcome. I'm really glad you liked it. 
Well, speaking of movies that Tatum likes, uh, Tatum, do you want to tell us what we're going to be talking about next week? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Let the record show that I, Geneva even mentioned this and my arms flew up in the air because I'm so (laughs) excited. So I actually, Geneva and I had planned out initially the order of movies that we were going to discuss. And this movie was not even on the original list because I hadn't seen it yet. And then I watched this movie and I was like, okay, after we finish our first list of X amount of movies, we'll get to this one. And then I was like, no, we have to talk about it right now. So I moved the order around and I wanted to make sure that this episode was released before the Oscars. Next week, we will be discussing the wickedly talented one and only (laughs) 2022 film RRR directed by SS Rajamouli. Um, I hope that you guys will watch this film before we discuss it next week. I will talk about this a lot next week, but I know the movie is long. I know it's three hours. A lot of people, even people in the film community, they look at the three hour runtime and they're like, "Ugh, I'm not going to watch that. It's too long. Please watch this movie. (laughs) I promise you won't regret it. It does not feel like three hours. Um, and join us for the conversation next week because, it's going to be a good time. I love this film and I'm super thrilled to talk about it. It's going to be great. <clears throat> All right. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to to finish watching it because <laughs> <laughs> I have started it. And yeah, we will talk about it. Very excited to finish. Very excited to talk about it. So, yeah. All right. Until next week. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time. <laughs>